Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to Jeremiah chapter 32 and pick up at verse 26. This is the word of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am about to give this city into the hand of the Chaldeans and into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will take it. Chaldeans who are fighting against this city will enter and set this city on fire and burn it with the houses where people have offered incense to Baal on their roofs and poured out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger. Indeed, the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah have been doing only evil in my sight from their youth. For the sons of Israel have been provoking me to anger by the work of their hands, declares the Lord. Indeed, this city has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it, even to this day, so that it should be removed from before my face because of all the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger. They, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, they have turned their back to me and not their face. Though I taught them, teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house, which is called by my name to defile, to defile it. They built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch, which I had not commanded them, nor had it entered my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to this passage, we pray that you would help us and humble us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. This is a sermon on the 48th anniversary of legalized murder in the United States of America. We read that passage, and we know what came to the the nation of Judah and what happened to Jerusalem. God came and destroyed them and dragged them off the land. Right? Because they had sacrificed their children to Moloch. God dragged them off the land and scattered them about the nations because of that wickedness that they had done. We as a nation kill our children too. By the millions. Right? Does God look favorably on this? 
Does God not care because we're not Judah, we're not Israel? We're just distant in time and space and under a constitutional republic. He no longer cares about what we do to our children. Does God not see what we are doing? Just two days ago on the, uh, the actual anniversary of the Roe versus Wade decision, our president and vice president issued this statement. They said, today marks the 48th anniversary of the U- U.S. Supreme Court's landmark ruling in Roe v. Wade. In the past four years, reproductive health, right, which is a, a euphemism for murder, reproductive health, including the right to choose, has been under relentless and extreme attack. We are deeply committed to making sure everyone has access to care including reproductive health care, regardless of income, race, zip code, health insurance status, or immigration status. The Biden-Harris administration is committed to codifying Roe versus Wade and appointing judges that respect foundational precedents like Roe. We are also committed to ensuring that we work to eliminate maternal and infant health disparities, increase access to contraception, and support families economically so that all parents can raise their families with dignity. This commitment extends to our critical work on health outcomes around the world. As the Biden-Harris administration begins in this critical moment, now is the time to rededicate ourselves to ensuring that all individuals have access to the health care they need. I mean, there is so much in there that I could pick apart, right? That any one of us could pick apart. It is sanitizing murder, right? Contrast that with God's rebuke of Judah in Jeremiah, God's rebuke of his people. Hasn't history taught us that God judges nations? Has history taught us that? I mean, Scripture clearly teaches that, but hasn't even history taught us that God judges nations. The Germans who denied personhood to a class of people were beaten back, right? America was laid waste by civil war when she denied personhood to blacks, right? What will then become of us today? Here's my question then. What, what is the church, what are faithful Christians to do in a society that denies the, the life to babies in the womb and manufactures a right that protects women who commit such murders? What is the church to do now, 48 years after the Supreme Court of this land sweepingly decreed that a woman's right to privacy is more important than a baby's life? What is the church to do in the face of a government that is committed to calling the dismembering of an enwombed baby a positive good, a right, a, uh, a responsible choice, right, or, or an, even an honorable and noble act? 
We know from Jeremiah that there are sins that are committed by nations for which God heaps up his judgment and his judgment waits, just waits to break out against that nation in its fullness. There are sins that provoke God. Will the nation Israel be an example to us? They thought it would be acceptable to God that they worship him through the sacrifice of their sons and daughters to Moloch. They were a nation of people who had, in a sense, fish symbols on their cars and who killed their children at abortuaries. But God's patience did not last forever, and Israel and Judah were dragged off the land by hooks in their nose through a pagan conquering army over the course of several hundred years. Their affliction lasted a long time. So will this be an example to us? Does God see today? Does God see? So whether or not people acknowledge God in heaven and whether or not they have a category in their conscience called sin, nations heap up judgment for themselves when they sin in particularly heinous ways. How do we know the sin of killing children is an unparalleled evil? Because of what God says about Israel's imitation of the godless practice of sacrificing their own children to Baal, which we just read in Jeremiah 32. Look at verse 35. God says that it had not occurred to him. He's omniscient. It had not occurred to him. It had not entered his mind that they would give themselves to something so perverse, so damnable, so heartless. But again, the question is, what, what should the church be doing about this? What do, what do we do about this? Well, it helps to know history. Right? It helps to look at parallel situations and see how the church re, you know, reacted to the, the ethical questions of their day. There are two periods in modern world history that are analogous to abortion today and that come to our minds readily. The first is the denial of um, people of African descent, the status of persons. Right? The designation was made in this country through the Dred Scott v. Sanford decision of the Supreme Court in 1857. Right? A whole class of people, in this case people with black skin, was denied personhood. And therefore, what happens when you deny personhood of a person? They become property. Property. Here's what the court stated. We think that black people are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution and can, therefore, claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. On the contrary, they were at the time of America's founding considered as a subordinate and an inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race, and whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority and had no rights or privileges, but such as those who held the power in the government might choose to grant to them. I mean, that, that should, like, 
bother you? This terrible wrong, denying persons their personhood and the application of those, those inalienable rights granted by our creator, the first of which was the right to life, was, was corrected by legislation within a decade, but only after 620,000 men were struck down in battle. Do you know that's half of the number of people who have died in American wars in all time? 620,000 died. A generation of the sons of our nation died because of that wickedness. What did the church do, do during that time? Well, she split. She split between those who supported slavery and those who did not support slavery. She split. Second example in history is the denial of people of Jewish ancestry, the status of persons by the Aryans of Germany in the early part of the 20th century. The Nazi regime, in a much more gradual way than the shift, that swift designation um, of the Roe Supreme Court, Germany denied personhood to a whole class of people and therefore starved and tortured and gassed them. Not being persons, they could be thrown away like trash. What did the church do at that time? What did the Protestant, Lutheran, Bible-believing churches do during that time? Well, part of the church did this. They affirmed the Nazi regime. They just straight up said, we're with you. Saying they were leading the country into righteousness by their, their opposition to communism and godlessness. Right? They went along with the Nazi racial laws and supported the Fuhrer. They were uh, all for the church and the state walking in lockstep, quite literally. Together they promoted their moral vision for society. Of this church, which became known as the Deutsche Christian, Eric Metaxas in his biography of Bonhoeffer says this, they wanted a strong, unified Reich church and a Christian, and get this, they wanted a Christianity that was strong and masculine that would stand up to and defeat the godless and degenerate forces of Bolshevism. And they referred to their brand of Christianity as positive Christianity. Part of the church did this. Mainstream Protestant leaders were willing to justify the Arianism of the government, reasoning that the Jews were being the Jews who were baptized Christians could form their own church and had no particular business expecting to be a part of a distinctly German church. Right? They were the compromisers looking for a way to keep the peace. So they settled on separate but equal. Right? Perhaps that's analogous to the division that took place in the American church over slavery. Part of the church did this. They stood opposed to the government, even while they affirmed that the government had authority. This was the movement in which Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a leader. And Bonhoeffer thought much about this question that, was, that, that I asked earlier. What is the church to do when the government is calling evil good. Bonhoeffer said the church must continually ask the state whether its action can be justified as legitimate action of the state. 
i.e. as action which leads to law and order and not to lawlessness and disorder. In other words, the church must hold the state accountable, calling out her failings, calling them to righteousness, calling them to repentance, calling them to wield their rightful God-given authority rightly. It is the church and her leaders whose moral vision derived from the word of God, right, who are in a position to hold the state accountable. Even while they affirmed the state had God-given power, they were willing to speak to that power as another minister of God, the church. In other words, Christians are not anarchists, right? We believe in legitimate and godly authority, and just as the prophets called the leaders of Israel and Judah to repent, and John the Baptist called Herod to repent for his incestuous relationship, so we believe the church must speak to the state about her actions, even while respecting her authority. But the, what the church is never to do is take up the sword. What the church is never to do is take up the sword, which belongs exclusively to the state. Right? Calvin says this about the work of the church when the state's decrees are unjust. He writes in the Institutes, if anything in a public ordinance requires amendment, and we think that Roe needs amendment, let them, let the church, not raise a tumult or put their hands to the task. All of them ought to keep their hands bound in this respect, but let them commit the matter to the judgment of the magistrate whose hand alone is free. I mean, let them not venture anything without a command. In other words, when there are unjust decrees, we are called to remedy them through lawful means. Christian mustn't, mustn't ever become an anarchist or revolutionary just because there's injustice in the world. Never. There always is and always will be injustice in the world. Right? Short of the new heavens and new earth. And so we must be careful not to undo what we believe by taking matters into our own hands. Then Calvin says, some rulers are, are really, really bad. You know, they're like really wicked. And he says, they exercise... Sheer robbery, they plunder houses, they rape virgins and matrons, and they slaughter the innocent. What to do in that case? Here's what he says. Because of the wickedness of our rulers, many cannot be persuaded that they ought to recognize these as princes and to obey their authority as far as possible. For in such great disgrace and among such crimes, so alien to the office, not only of a magistrate, but also of a man, they discern no appearance of the image of God which ought to have shown in the magistrate. While they see no trace of that good minister of God who have been appointed to praise the good and to punish the evil, thus they also do not recognize as ruler him whose dignity and authority scripture commends to us. Indeed, this inborn feeling has always been in the minds of man to hate and curse tyrants as much as to love and venerate lawful kings, right? So what he's saying there is it is wrong to reject them, even when they're really, really bad. And he says, if that's not clear, he says this, and a very wicked man, utterly unworthy of all honor, 
Provided he has the public power in his hands, that noble and divine power resides which the Lord has by his word given to the ministers of his justice and judgment. Accordingly, he should be held in the same reverence and esteem by his subjects insofar as public obedience is concerned in which they would hold the best of kings if he were given to them. Right? Hold that man in reverence who's wicked just like you would the one who is godly. So, in other words, yes, there is incredible injustice in our land. Yes, we have elected rulers who have no grid for good and evil. But the Christian duty is to honor authority even while availing ourselves of all lawful means to speak to and correct that authority. That's why freedom of speech is so important for Christians. We as private citizens and church members desire to announce God's righteousness by opening our mouths outside of the abortion clinic, in the halls of our state legislators, rights, and supreme courts. And we do so, we raise, we say you're doing wrong even as we yield to and honor the authority over us. This is the paradox it is to be a Christian. Right? We are those who have one king, the Lord Jesus Christ, whose kingdom is not of this world, but simultaneously, we are those who have many kings whose kingdoms are of this world. We obey Jesus Christ above all else, but obey those earthly kings because our one king has told us to do it. Right? Again, in his book on Bonhoeffer, Metaxas draws attention to three ways in which the church can act toward the state. Um, he stole these from Bonhoeffer, right? He's summarizing Bonhoeffer's views. First, the church can question the actions of the state and the legitimacy of the state and then help the state to be the state as God has ordained, right? So question and help the state speak to them and say, this is what godliness is. This is what scripture says. This is what you should do. This is wickedness, what you're doing here. Second, he said that the church can aid the victims of state action, of unjust state action. In this case, he was talking about aiding those who were being oppressed, even if they weren't Christians, in this case, the Jews, right? He quoted Galatians, do good to all men. In our day, this would be offering to adopt babies at the abortion clinic who are about to be slaughtered, right? To intercede for the victims of oppression. And then third, he said the church must not just bandage the victims under the wheel, but put a spoke in the wheel itself. Metaxas goes on to state that the, that final stage, now this is critically important, that final stage is only allowable not when you think the president's an idiot. Not when you think that the president is wicked. Not when you think that the laws of the land are wicked. Not when you think that there's oppression that is just gruesome and awful. The only time that, that the, the church is allowed to put a spoke in the wheel of the state is when the existence of the church is threatened. That's what Bonhoeffer said. Okay? And we all know that Bonhoeffer was the guy who was in on the plot to get rid of Hitler. Right? 
Only when the existence of the church is threatened, and therefore when the state ceases to be the state is defined by God. Why is that legitimate? Because the gospel must be preached for the salvation of souls, whether Jew or Greek. The church must fulfill her calling to call all men everywhere to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ. So let me repeat, putting a spoke in the wheel itself is only allowable when the existence of the church is threatened. Now, stick with me here. Stick with me. A lot of facts and quotes. The Magdeburg Confession, some of you have heard of the Magdeburg Confession. It was written back in the time of the Reformation, 1550, when Charles V, the emperor, was trying to force cities in Germany to revert back to Roman Catholicism. Right, by force, he was trying to get them to convert back to Roman Catholicism. And there's this little town of Magdeburg, and these pastors in the town get together and write this confession, right? Um, and they say the same thing as Bonhoeffer. They say the same thing as Bonhoeffer. And remember, Bonhoeffer's in the middle of an intense war. Magdeburg has troops outside their city threatening them. Right? The stakes are really high when they write this. But they say, in the Magdeburg Confession, it says, they say we ought not to resist our leaders when they sin. First Peter 2, they quote Exodus 22. Or when, contrary to his oath and the laws, a ruler takes away life or spouse or children or privilege. Don't resist when Ruler takes away your wife, your spouse, your, your children, and your privilege, right, your money. In this case, they write, Christian magistrates should be prepared to suffer even injuries of this sort and to leave vengeance to God when the injury affects individual men or a few men, and when the injury is able to be tolerated without sin, I mean, that's a mind-boggling statement, right? If you can tolerate the seizing of your wife without sin, tolerate it. It's not a time to raise up and fight. Okay? I'm, you're looking at me like you're, I'm crazy. I'm just quoting people who are smarter than us. When... Or we may take action, they say, we may take action like the Hebrew midwives, when to comply with the order would, would be to have to sin. But they conclude we are only able to resist with arms when, get this, the church and her message of salvation is threatened. That's what they say. Only when the church and the gospel is threatened can you resist. They write, resistance is just and necessary when the highest level of laws and divine knowledge that closely pertains to the glory of God and to the eternal salvation of each man is threatened, right? Only when the glory of God and the salvation of man is threatened um, can you rise up. Well, there's so much I could say at this point, right, about those things. But it must be noted that those who are in much more difficult circumstances than we are, right, 
said that it is not until the existence of the church is threatened that you should resist your government. Satisfied? All you rabble-rousers? Right? There's a, there's a rebel, there's a revolutionary in every man's heart. Right? We do not like authority. If you know anything from this pulpit, I've said that over and over and over and over again. We do not like authority, but Christians must not be stupid and reactionary. Okay? And there are a lot of stupid and reactionary Christians right now who think that it's just a game. Let's rise up. Let's, let's rebel against our government. Okay? One of, the, one of the principles of just war is that you don't start a war until you know you can win. We can't win this war. We don't have F-16s. We don't. We got pea shooters, man. So is the existence of the church threatened today in our nation? No. Praise God. Right now, it's not. Are there signs it could come? Yes, of course. Absolutely. There's signs all over the place. We're all seeing them. In the meantime, it's important for us to call the state to be the state, to remind our society then of God's vengeance, not our own vengeance. God's vengeance is coming. That is assuredly coming. God has seen our bloodshed. He knows and he is fattening us up for a day of slaughter. God will bring his vengeance. We or our children or our grandchildren may learn what what life is like in, in Bonhoeffer's third stage when you have to put a spoke into the wheel of the state because the church is, is threatened. Confessing Christ, preaching his name, living according to his word may be forbidden in the name of freedom, of course. And then we will be called to suffer greatly as strangers and exiles in the world. We will know what it's like to be the scum of the the earth. And we will have to rise up and make sure there is a church. Make sure there is a church. Right? Not make sure there's a nation. Not make sure there's, there's a constitution. Make sure there's a church to preach the gospel in the world. That's what's critical. That's what you should care about. You should care about the church more than you care about the Constitution. You should see the church as fundamental to any order in any society. And that's why they said don't resist under these superfluous things like loss of life and property. Resist when the church is threatened because that's the message of Jesus Christ. But the rebel in you says, man, that's way too late. And who cares about the church? I want my four acres. I guarantee there's one way to ensure that our children have to rise up, and that's to be silent, right? Not advocating that. Be silent, coast, bring no accountability, tell your, tell your pastor to stay out of political um, things too late um, silence the prophetic voice of the church uh, don't go out to the mortuary don't intercede for the oppressed 
So if we give ourselves, you know, if we, if we withdraw from all of that activity, I guarantee you stage three comes and it's legislated and codified. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, again, let me, let me try to stir you up to love and good deeds. What are we as a church to do about this wickedness in our land? Well, one, we have to think about the things that I've been talking about, but we have to be wise and not reactionary. We have to study history to know what the church has done and learn from that. We have to look to the word which says that vengeance is God's, he will repay, and to truly feel that in our bones and to remember that the vengeance of God is, is surely going to be more satisfying to you than any vengeance you could ever take. Right? He will rise up against all his enemies and he will destroy them. We just read Psalm 2. Jesus will come with a sword and he will dash the nations to pieces. And so what are we to do? We patiently endure, like I preached last week from James 5. Jesus will come again, set everything straight. No need for you to make the attempt. There's just no need. You're going to mess it up if you do. Second, repent of your own sexual sins. If we're going to talk about Moloch and babies being slaughtered as sacrifices and false worship, we better scrutinize ourselves in our own idolatry when it comes to pornography. Right? You need to be like Gideon tearing down his father's altar before the battle with the Midianites. You have to follow our Savior's direction to pull the plank from your own eye before you pull the, the specks from other eyes. This is to root out leaven and letting judgment begin with the household of God. One's own house has to be put in order before directing others to order their homes. Right? Adultery, feminism, effeminacy, pornography, all those things must be repented of before we call others to righteousness. Third, we have to know scripture. Uh, in knowing scriptures, you'll begin to view the sins of our culture with a godly mind. Right? The utter sinfulness of sin will return to you if you study scripture. As our minds are conformed to Jesus Christ, we begin to understand the anger of the Lord against all unrighteousness. Why do we need this? Because not, not having that sort of mindset leads us to silence in the face of atrocities, silence in the face of oppression. Right? We need to know and reflect on the sinfulness of mankind and the glory and the holiness of of Almighty God. And most importantly, that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. We will then long to preach the message of forgiveness only found in the gospel, only found in Jesus Christ. And then, and then we will begin to see that the absolutely mind-bogglingly necessary role or calling for the church in the world. Our call for righteousness must be more than just a self-righteous belligerating. Fourth, love your neighbor. What characterizes those who advocate, advocate for abortion is their heartlessness toward the weak and the voiceless. It's heartless 
It's unbelievably heartless. There is no oppression equal to the dismembering of children within the womb. There's no oppression like that. We must counter that heartlessness by our largeness of heart, by our depth of true compassion. Those children being led to the slaughter must be remembered. Your neighbor tomorrow is going to be oppressed and killed. Your neighbor. Were you silent? Were you loveless? Scripture doesn't allow this. It exhorts us this way. Deliver those who are being taken away to death, and those who are staggering to slaughter will hold them back. If you say, see, we did not know this, does he not consider it who weighs the hearts? And does he not know, know it who keeps your soul? And will he not render to man according to his work? James, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Savior is this, to, to visit orphans, Babies in the womb whose, children, whose parents hate them are orphans, right? Orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Fifth, speak boldly. Speak boldly, but wisely. Enjoy your freedom to live as a Christian and make the most of the days because they are evil. Go to the gates of hell and speak. Go to those who have God-given authority over them to make laws and teach them what is right. Why are you wasting your freedom? Right? Why are all of you wasting your freedom? Why are you not talking to your legislators all the time? Why will you not come out to the abortuary on Saturday mornings? Why won't you give up an hour of your week to advocate for the oppressed in our nation? Why won't you? Why are you silent? You should be, you should be a, a bee in the bonnet of all your elected officials, right? Yelling at Fox News on your TV screen is not speaking prophetically. It's not. It is not productive, right? You have to go where those with authority will hear you. I mean, um, come on, you... You who complain but do nothing that costs you anything. Come on. You complain but, but you do nothing that costs you anything. Change that. Get some, get some love in your heart. Right? Get some love in your heart. Because, because yesterday, a dozen children were ripped apart in Greenville. They were just ripped apart sucked out through a tube into a bottle, poured out from the bottle into a tray so they could count the body parts to make sure that they got the whole baby. Six, pray. Pray without ceasing. Plead with God. Stop believing that prayer is passive. Prayer is the most active thing you could possibly do. All right, really pray. Really pray. The book of Isaiah begins with God saying, I've had enough of your burnt offerings. That's like God saying to us, I've had enough of your worship services and your missions programs and your, you know, your, your sophisticated websites and your podcasts, and I've, I've just had it with that crap. And then they're called to this. 
Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from my sight, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. I mean, no application from, from that for us, right? That's not gospel, is it? You know, like, like we would do any of those things without sharing the one who sent us, which is Jesus Christ himself. But here's my point. Later in the book, after all the promises of God have been graciously given to this apostate people, all the promises of Jesus Christ, God with us, there's this little commendation to pray without ceasing. On your walls of Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. You who remind the Lord, take no rest for yourselves. You who remind God, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Right? Until he establishes justice. Not we. Until he does, we pray and say, God, establish justice. And then soon enough, Jesus comes with that sword coming from his mouth, dashing the nations to pieces, and we will laugh along with God. We will rejoice that the wicked are dealt with, and we will tremble knowing that we just missed it because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Give God no rest in your prayers. Do you long to see... Other people confess Christ. Do you long to see the church established? Do you long to see a righteous state praising what is right and punishing what is evil? Do you long to have revival? Do you long to have peace so that the name of Jesus may be named among us like he's being named this morning? Well, then pray. Pray. Give God no rest until he establishes and makes the church a praise in the earth. Right. So patiently endure, repent of your sexual sins, know God's word, love your neighbor, speak boldly, and then saturate all of it just with prayer. Pray that God would do what he has promised he would do. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in you. We praise your name. You who are our king. Father, I pray that you would bring to an end the slaughter of babies in our nation. And Father, we know in praying that 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 is a a fearful prayer to make because it may come through much pain through much warfare, through much division. All the while, Father, I pray that, that, Christians would not, that Christians would not lose heart, that the church would not turn to means that are well below the power of your hand. Father, that we would trust in you, that we would believe your promises, that we would know that you are You are setting all things right and Jesus has been raised from the dead and that he is reigning over all things.
that his, his reign isn't something in the future. His reign is now and well and eternally into the future. Father, I pray that you would help us to patiently endure. I pray that we would not take vengeance into our own hands. I pray that we would be wise. I pray that we would suffer the, even the seizure of our own property and consider it, uh, joyfully consider it, because we have a better and lasting possession. Mm-hmm. Father, I pray, I pray for, for the, the end of the, the, the killing in Greenville. We pray that the Greenville Women's, Women's Clinic would close down. They would run out of money, that they would run out of, of clients, that they would run out of children arriving there, forced by their mother to be killed. And Father, we, we confess these as the sins of our nation, and we know, trembling, Father, that you will judge nations, that you have judged our own nation, that you have given us many warnings, that you have perhaps even given us a warning in all the chaos that's going around now through COVID and through, through economic sanctions and through all the difficulties we're facing. This is a gentle prod. It is ever so gentle from you, but I pray that it wouldn't be lost on us. And Father, we know, as, as Calvin said, that you, you raise up wicked rulers when you intend to judge a nation. And Father, we, we have had wicked ruler after wicked ruler after wicked ruler. Those who care nothing about the church, those who do not know you, do not know your word, Father, those who just, who, who, who have no conception of your holiness. Oh, Lord, I pray even still for your mercy. We pray for your mercy upon our children and our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren. Pray that they would be able to live in a land where the rulers praise what is right and punish what is evil and they can gather for worship. But even, Father, if they can't in the ease with which we've done it, we pray that they would have conventicles in the forest and they would gather as your church and suffer for your name because they love Jesus and they love your salvation and they love the gates of Zion. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.